So, we have really not very much time to do this in because that was a wonderful time of worship. So, let's just see where we end up with, shall we? Uh, So, this is our second week in a little uh, mini-series that we're doing at the moment as a church, just to kind of talk about our little vision statement, mission statement, purpose statement as a church, that we are creating communities which bring hope and joy to Gloucestershire. And so what we're doing over the month of September is we're unpacking the three elements of that little statement, that we're creating communities. And last week, Claire spoke fantastically. Who heard Claire speak last week? I mean, wasn't it good? It was great. She talked about scarcity mentality in our communities and being a community of generosity. It was amazing. Go and listen to it on the podcast if you missed it. And I'm talking this week about hope. And then next week, Emily's talking about joy. So she will be wearing the joy jumper if you've seen that before. So there we go. Um, So three talks to just explain about who we are as a community and why we do what we do. Um, So before we go any further, I'm just a little bit thirsty. So I'm just going to fill up my glass of water over here. Um, Okay, so just a really quick test in the room. Like this glass of water, this is classic, half full or half empty? Too big, thank you. There's always one. Half full or half empty? Half full. Any half emptiers in the room? Okay, hands up if you say half full. Okay, hands up if you say half empty. How's that? Is that is that better? Okay, now it's half empty. Thank you very much. So, most, anybody, any trolls want to take a third path? Anybody? You started with empty, and then you filled it, and so it's in the process of being filled, so it's half full. If you started with it full, and you were drinking it, and it was reducing, that would then be half empty. Uh, that's a good answer. If you like answers like that, come to Theology Club. Um, so, classic. Optimist, pessimist. We all know that certain people are wired to be slightly more optimistic. Some people are wired to be a little bit more pessimistic. Um, And I was reflecting, so I'm talking about hope this week, and I was thinking about optimism and pessimism. And I was thinking, as followers of Jesus, if you've decided that you're going to give your life to Jesus, you're going to follow him, you're going to go, you know, going to kind of give your life over for his kingdom, do you think that Christians should be fundamentally optimistic or fundamentally, fundamentally pessimistic? What do you think? What I'd like you to do is get into some little groups with those sitting around you. Gloucester Vineyard folks, this is a moment to be hospitable, so make sure everybody is included. You're going to have, we are short on time, so you have one minute to have like the fastest conversation ever. Christians, optimists or pessimists, and I want to hear some feedback, so go. Okay, okay, let's take the temperature of the room though. So, who, which groups felt that Christians should be optimists? Yeah, rough show of hands. Did anybody feel brave and say that Christians should be pessimists? Anybody say that? That's interesting. Did anybody have a nice third option that we could hear about? Pragmatist. Pragmatist. Oh, you're gonna, okay, go on. No, d- d- pragmatist with an optimistic spin. Pragmatist with an optimistic spin. Okay, anybody else want it? Yes. Uh, in the U.S., we'd say that already, not yet. So it's a little bit of both. Right? Oh, a little bit of both. I like that answer. Anybody else? One more, maybe? Realist. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Realistic. Now, if I'm honest, I can kind of see this from both angles. You know, like in one regard, I think Christians should be optimistic. I think we're called to believe that things can get better and should get better. After all, God did promise that eventually he's going to bring all things together and bring all things uh, to be as they should be and bring justice. So I think from an ultimate big picture perspective, I think Christians can be optimists. 
But I also think that there's an argument to be made that Christians could be pessimists. I think when you look at the kind of day-to-day grind of life, and you kind of, I think we're called to walk around the world with an awareness of what the world is really like, and we're called to be wise, aren't we? Which means we look at our surroundings around us, we see what the world is doing and the trends around us. So I think actually there's, a, there's an argument to say that Christians, if they're going to be wise, maybe they should be pessimistic. Maybe I'm wrong. But I wonder, we've all come here this afternoon, we've, sit, we've sat here, I wonder, are we overall feeling optimistic or pessimistic about our lives? Like, or what about culture? Are we feeling optimistic or pessimistic about that? Do we have like a positive feeling, things are getting better or things are getting worse? Well, today I want to talk about that third path. I want to talk about the path of hope because I believe that hope is neither optimism nor pessimism. And I believe that followers of Jesus are called to hold a hopeful posture as we consider our lives and the world around us. And it's a really core part of who we are as a church, who this church is, um, that we believe we are called to both announce and deliver hope to this city that we live in. That we are called to be hope bringers. um, That we are creating communities which bring hope to Gloucestershire. So what exactly do we mean by that? What is hope? Well, today we're going to be kind of diving into that a little bit. Um, so, I want to start by identifying what I think is two like universally held instincts within humanity. I, I could be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure that most humans feel like the world we're living in at the moment is just not all that it could be. I think that probably every person here and all, most of our friends would agree that the world could be better, it could be run better, it could be more just. Like we all have this instinct that the world could be a better place. Like if you just think about, for example, the climate emergency, it's like a perfect example of the way that humans have kind of wrecked this world. We can see the damage all around us and we can also identify ways that we as individuals and governments could work together to, to make it better, to fix the problem. But the next question is, like, if, if we're going to do that, like, where's that change going to come from? Or, like, what or who is going to motivate that? What force could possibly achieve that? Like, what, um, and what fascinates me about people is that I see that most people have that instinct that the world can be a better place. But I also see another built-in instinct in people that that hope, that force that could change the world can be found in a person. What fascinates me is that I see both of those things in myself and I see it in my friends. That there might be a person who can stand up and see clearly enough and speak loudly enough. They might be able to lead us to a brighter tomorrow. You, um, you may have had this experience in the past with a shiny new politician that came on the scenes and you thought to yourself, ha-ha, this is the one, this person is going to lead us to a brighter tomorrow. And then when they inevitably let you down, you think, okay, that's it, I'm not going with politicians anymore, I'm going to go for somebody grassroots, I'm going to go Greta Thunberg all the way, like gra- grassroots vision of a brighter tomorrow. Or maybe you like look to religious leaders or people with influence as your source of hope. Or maybe you're just like me and you're following Taylor Swift. Who's with, who's any of Swifties? Yeah? Yes, come on, absolutely. Um, I just find it fascinating that there seems to be these two instincts baked into human nature. The instinct that the world could and should be a better place, and the instinct that a person can lead us there. Now, this is what I think, but when I spoke to my wife about this, she went, mm, I'm not sure. So I wonder whether you might be, mm, I'm not sure. I think maybe what I've just said maybe needs a little bit of nuance added. So why don't we get back into those little groups that we had again, and I'm going to give you, oh, I'm so sorry, but I'm going to give you one more minute, and I want you to talk about that. Do you recognize those two instincts? Do you recognize the instinct that the world could be a better place? And secondly, do you recognize that instinct that that hope, that change can come through a person? 
Okay, one minute, sorry, go for it. Okay, that's your minute. I'm really sorry. I'd like to give you more time than that. So let's hear from you guys. What do you think? Do we, are we in agreement? Do we want to add some nuance? Anybody over here want to add anything? You could say no. Shake your heads if you don't want to. That's fine. Okay, anybody want to add some nuance? Yes. Yeah, go on. So yes, we, believe, we should, as Christians, believe the world should be better and recognize that. But I think people sometimes underestimate the inhuman level of work that that requires which ties into can someone lead us there yes absolutely you know we can't do it on our own because everyone's got a different idea about how the world should be and how we should get there excellent excellent thoughts anybody else you do get a gold star for that well done anybody else want to add some nuance or another thought to that if you say no it's great because it's more time for me to speak great awesome um so at this stage i would like us to open our bibles um, because these two instincts are so present throughout the whole of the Bible. In fact, the origin of this instinct, it has, the Bible has a lot to say about where this instinct comes from and also what the solution might be, what that hope might be. Now, at this stage, I did write like two pages of theology and stuff, and I was trying my best to keep it concise and funny, blah, blah, blah. And I got to the end of it and I went, I've seen a video about this somewhere, and then I remembered that the Bible Project guys did an amazing video about this. So I thought that rather than me waffle, we'd watch the video. How's that? So should we watch the video? And then they can do it for me, yeah? Let's do it. There's this crazy story at the beginning of the Bible. We have Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden. And everything in this garden is great. It's exactly as it should be, except... There's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. So that's it. Uh, avoid this fruit tree and we're fine. Right. It seems pretty simple. But in this garden, there's a snake. And it starts telling a different story. It says that if you eat of this tree, it's not going to kill you. In fact, it's going to make you become like God. And Adam and Eve, they believe the snake and they eat the fruit. And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost and evil and death enters into God's good world. Now, why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean, this thing is a problem. Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives, even still today. But there is some hope because right here in the story, God makes this really interesting promise to Adam and Eve. That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve. And this guy's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's heel. So it's like a mutual destruction. Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise. And it's just left hanging there until the next key moment in the story when God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great grandsons, this guy named Judah. And he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line and that the whole world's going to follow this king and he's going to bring peace and harmony and there'll be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards and it's going to be awesome. The first king that we meet from the line of Judah is a guy named King David. And he's a hero. Maybe he is the snake crusher. But it turns out that David is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. He never crushes the snake 
just the opposite. However, God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. But as you go on in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total chumps. They give in to the snake, they choose evil, they go after money and sex and power and following other gods. Things get so bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground and the big bad empire of Babylon just takes them out. And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise. So it seems like the whole plan is lost. But during these dark days, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets. And they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promised king receives this wound because of humanity's evil, and that it kills him. But then all of a sudden he comes back, and Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people. But the Old Testament ends, and the snake-crushing king that everyone's been talking about never shows up. And this is why, when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth, not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. Yeah, we learn that he's from the line of David, Judah, and Abraham. And he goes around Israel announcing that the goodness of God's kingdom is here now. And he begins confronting the effects of evil on people by healing them, by forgiving them of their sins and evil. Many people are now believing that this is, in fact, the promised king. But Jesus began telling his closest followers that he was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself. The fatal snake bite wound. Exactly. And so it seems like the serpent wins. And this story actually would be a tragedy except for what happens next. Jesus rises from the dead. And now Jesus has the power over evil and death for himself. And so the rest of the New Testament is then making this claim that Jesus' power over evil and death has now become available to us to begin confronting the effects of evil in our lives. But even still, death and evil are a real problem in our world all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He destroys the snake once and for all and he restores the goodness of the garden here on earth. Okay. There's this crazy story at the beginning of the Bible. Oh, Tim, it's my turn. Um, so, fab. I'm going to skip a whole bunch of stuff here. But I hope that kind of spoke to you and landed with you in some ways. But that's great. But that's great for the Bible. Like, that's kind of 2,000 years ago, ancient Hebrew literature. Like, why should we care? So what? What impact does this actually make in our lives? Why should we care about this today? I think we should care about this, and I think this matters because... As we've said already, all of us and all of our friends are walking around with these two instincts, and it's live in their lives, like the instinct that the world should be a better place and the instinct that a person can lead us there. And from what I can see, all of us are desperately trying to find hope in the world in a human being. We're trying to find hope for a better world in a person. I see folks all the time looking to invest that hope in, their, in that 
find that hope in their partner as if they'd be able to bring hope and healing into the world. Or perhaps, you know, I see people doing it with their kids as well, like laying this expectation on their children that they might be able to bring hope and healing into your lives. Like, take it from me, your children will bring many things into your life. Like, hope and healing are not two of those things. Or like, maybe you're looking for hope and healing in like some influencer or somebody who just does that social media thing really, really well. Or, or maybe I see a lot of people searching for hope where our culture will tell us that we'll find it. Because our culture tells us that we are most likely to find it inside ourselves. All we need to do is be more self-reliant to search inside ourselves for the hope that we're looking for. I, I don't know about you. Maybe you're a better person than I am, but maybe you're wired differently to me. But when I look inside myself, I don't find much hope. I find a lot of selfishness, I find a lot of greed, I find brokenness and dysfunction. I find nothing but that scarcity mindset that Claire talked about last week. Like a mindset that pushes me into fear and preservation. You know, when I look into my own heart, when I look into my own life, I realize I need help. Like I'm in no position to help myself. There is no hope coming from in here. I mean, maybe you're different, but that's just what I've discovered. I think we see this all the time, people desperately trying to invest their hope in human beings who end up being human beings. Investing our hope, you know, if we're investing our hope in human beings, even if we're investing it in ourselves, if we're expecting that person to fix the world, even if we're just expecting that person to fix our world, history has borne this out time and time again. We're going to be disappointed. But the resounding message that runs through the whole Bible and the message that this church exists to proclaim is do not abandon hope. Do not stop hoping. Please invest your hope somewhere. Please invest your hope in someone. Please invest your hope in Jesus. I think that the Bible would loudly affirm those two instincts in us, that the world can and should be a better place and that we can find hope in a person, and that that person is Jesus. And I would unequivocally encourage all of us to do that, to find our hope in Jesus and in nowhere else. The message of the church is that there is hope, that hope has come, that hope looked like a person, and that it was Jesus. And as a church, we want to be a community which doesn't just talk about this stuff, but we want to embody it. We want to be a community which is defined by our hope, which goes out into the world um, with a ridiculous level of joy, a ridiculous level of confidence, a ridiculous level of generosity, because we have found a living hope. And this is one of the mind-boggling things about God, which I don't think I will ever understand, that he is capable of single-handedly bringing this hope into the world, but he doesn't seem to want to do it alone. He seems to want to do it through his people. He seems to want to deliver that hope through his church. He seems to even take great delight in delivering and bringing hope and healing into the lives of his children and saying, now, you're, now it's your turn. Now go. Go and tell everyone you know about the hope that you've found. Go and be spreaders of this hope everywhere. Don't just say it. Don't just engineer moments to share your testimony or be a good witness. I want you to live your lives in such a way that you stand out like a sore thumb. I want you to live your lives in such a way that you reek of hope that your attitude and your conduct are offensively hopeful to those around you, that people cannot bear but ask, where does that come from? So when our colleagues come to us and they share that they've got a cancer diagnosis, we can be optimistic and we can say, well, gosh, I hope the doctor sorts that out. We can be pessimistic and say, oh, well, we all know how that ends. Or we can be hopeful and say, well, I know Jesus. 
I know the healer. Can I pray for you? You know, when our friend comes to us and say they've lost their job and that they're worried about how they're going to feed their kids, optimism says, hey, maybe you'll find a new job. And pessimism says, well, you're going to find this winter tough, especially with the current job market. But hope says, I've been where you are. And that's where I met Jesus as the, as the provider. When we read the statistics about some of the cycles of abuse and neglect and poverty in some of our neighborhoods in this city, we can be optimistic and say, hey, maybe that new council initiative will solve that. Or we can be pessimistic and say, well, those families are a lost cause. We should focus our energies where they can actually help. Or we can push into hope. We can be a community of hope that says those people are not just numbers and they deserve better than pity or scorn. They are beautiful human beings who are made in the image of God. And I'm no better than them. And I believe that Jesus has a way and a plan to restore them, just like he's restored me. I believe that Jesus can break in and heal generational cycles of abuse and write new destinies over those hopeless families. We are called to be hope bringers. We are called to be a hope-filled community, to choose hope in every circumstance, to decide to be hopeful, to lean into hope, to trust in the Lord with all our hearts and don't not lean on our own understandings. To embody that hope in such a way that the world might find hope. And there's this wonderful little encouragement given to one of the first churches by one of the first church leaders, a guy named Peter. He said to one of his churches, Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. I love that. I feel like Peter's speaking to a British audience there. He's like, do it with gentleness and respect. You're like, thanks, Peter. Awesome. British values. But honestly, this is what this looks like for me and my walk with Jesus. Um, I am personally rubbish at that cold can I tell you about Jesus conversation with a stranger on the streets? I'm just rubbish at it. Anybody else rubbish at that? Anybody else tried it? Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Honestly, I think this is what it looks like in, in our walk with Jesus. Like, I think we're supposed to be living lives, both individually and as a community, which are fueled by hope. And that hope is supposed to stand us out from the crowd. Because honestly, in those moments when our friends and our colleagues notice the hope in our hearts and they want to know why that informs our lifestyle, honestly, in that moment, the conversation about Jesus is so dead easy. It's so easy. In that moment, you can say something like, you know what, I might be naive, I might be simple, but I've just found that I cannot live my life without hope. I I, I need a hope that I can rely on. And in my life, I've looked for hope all over the place. I've looked for it in other people. I've looked for it in myself. And the only place I've found hope is in Jesus and his kingdom. I can't live without hope, so I choose to hope. I choose to hope in Jesus and his kingdom, even when I don't see it, even when I don't feel it. I choose to hope. So, we are Gloucester Vineyard Church. We are creating communities which bring hope to Gloucestershire. And our hope is found in Jesus and in Father God and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he has commissioned us as his kids to bring, put our hope in him, to live from that place and to deliver that hope to a broken and hurting world. So we're just going to end today by just kind of responding to that in a little bit uh, in our own hearts. Um, And so 
at some stage, the kiddos are going to come back in. But before they do, I want to just kind of lead us through a little bit of a reflection, if that's okay. Um, and then with whatever time we've got left, we'll break back into those groups and we're going to pray for each other. But why don't we just take a little moment now to, to kind of quiet our hearts. And you can, don't have to take part in this if you don't want to. But if you'd like to, I just want to encourage you to just close your eyes. And again, we're going to just engage in a moment of silence. And then I'm going to pray. And I just kind of encourage you to pray along in your own hearts.